Good morning, comrades. You're listening to Workers' Power with Hannah, Jackson and Bill on 4ZZZ. And you just listened to Dear God by XTC. Thank you to Artcart for leading us in with another wonderful show. And thank you for not stealing any of our songs this week. <laughs> Uh, Today on the show, we have plenty of workers' action from here and abroad and, of course, the world-famous Scallywag of the Week. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast, the Yagara and Turrbal people. This land was stolen, never ceded. We pay our respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and we stand in solidarity with First Nations people in their struggles for recognition, reparation and land rights. All right, let's jump into some First Nation workers' action. Uh, Yes, so now we've got some news from Victoria about an assault by the police. A 32-year-old Noongar man has alleged he was racially profiled and assaulted by up to 15 members of Victoria Police while on his way to work in Melbourne on Wednesday morning. Corey Penny said he was riding his bicycle to work when he was verbally abused by the police officers and forcibly tackled him from his bike in an incident that left him injured and his possessions damaged. Mr. Penny told NITV News that he believed the incident was a racist attack. They think they can get away with doing anything to us blackfellas. If I was a white person in a suit, I still would have been riding past, he said. Mr. Penny said he was taken by ambulance from the scene to the hospital for injuries sustained to his arm. He said he has received no apology from Victoria Police. The Australian Workers' Union has shown its support and will lodge a complaint with Victoria's Minister for Police condemning the incident and demanding the officers involved are held accountable. Right on. Yeah, it was quite lucky. I remember this story. Um... Uh, he was quite lucky he was close to his workplace and then his uh, work workmates came and actually helped him out and said, hey, hang on a bit. Um, so, yeah, and, uh, of course, the union's there to help him out. So um, it shouldn't it shouldn't be like that, though, should it? No, it shouldn't be like that. And as you said, like, he, is one, he was very lucky that his workmates were there. This kind of thing happens all the time and um, no-one's there to help. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so um, although uh, it hasn't been reported much, we report it. And um, that being said, even we don't get to report everything that goes on where, uh, um, you you know, there's systematic racism within um, all of our police forces, uh, you know, like uh, in profiling um, victims, basically. So, um, yeah, good on the union for uh, uh, standing up for... For young uh, um, Mr. Penny. Right, on to our next one. What's that? Gumarai traditional custodians lose Shinoa coal mine challenge. Yeah, a court has knocked back the Gumarai, sorry, Gumarai people's attempt to save significant areas of cultural heritage from destruction as part of an open-cut coal mine, despite acknowledging their cultural value. Veronica Dolly Talbot, a Gumarai traditional custodian, sued the Environment Minister Susan Lay over her decision not to protect the areas on the Liverpool Plains in northwest New South Wales. Miss Lay has acknowledged that the development of the Shenhui 
watermark open cut coal mine would destroy or desecrate the significant areas, but decided to give it the green light because of the mine's economic and social benefits, which she said outweighed the area's heritage value. The federal court ruled on Wednesday that Lay's decision was lawful. It remains vitally important to us to protect our sacred places, songline and burials of our ancestors, which is a sacred place to us, a place which holds our ancestors' footprints, their legacy to us, Miss Talbot said in a statement. Miss Talbot said the decision showed the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Heritage Protection Act was not able to provide meaningful protection for areas of particular significance to ab- Aboriginal people. Ms Talbot said she had lodged a new application for protection of sacred areas with substantial new information on, on behalf of 600 Gumaroi people and 31 Indigenous nations. Ms Talbot's lawyer, the CEO of the Environmental Defender's Office, David Morris, said in a statement that the decision highlights the fact that our federal culture and heritage laws are not fit for purpose. The Act allows short-term economic outcomes to outweigh their protection of culturally important sites, he said. The Court has found that the Minister was permitted to consider very broad, non-Indigenous matters in deciding to refuse protection for these ancient sites of immeasurable value. Ms Talbot said that after the destruction of the Dukin Caves, there was an urgent need to protect places of significance for First Nations people. As the oldest living culture on the planet, surely it should be of utmost importance to Australia. Damn straight. Pretty important to uh, me and uh, us here on Workers' Power. Yeah, we keep hearing all the awful things that Susan Lee is doing, just constantly destroying uh, the sacred sites of Indigenous people. Yeah, all in the name of profit. I saw a pretty funny um, joke story yesterday that Indigenous um, custodians accidentally destroy BHP headquarters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and sometimes it's not even in the name of profit, like the Jaburong uh, situation, which is like moving a road a little bit to the left, Mm. which doesn't profit anyone, just costs a lot of money, and it seems to... (laughs) And it feels like they're pushing it for purely ideological reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all that risk aversion and managerialism and neoliberalism is all very tightly wound together. Just just the fact that... You know, Ms. Lay comes out with it and and said, uh, decided to give the green light because of the mine's economic and social benefits, which she said outweighed the area's heritage value. Yeah, Yeah. for shame. Somehow these mines outweigh the heritage value of the oldest culture, living culture on earth. Yeah, because the heritage value in her eyes is in dollars. Yeah. Right, um, um, now we've got some uh, little follow-up news yeah. from the committal hearing about the murder of Kumanjaya Walker. Um, on Thursday, the 3rd of September, the committal hearing to determine if the police officer who murdered Kumanjaya Walker will face trial for murder in the Supreme Court was adjourned until the 25th of September, as all the witnesses had been heard from. A sign of hope for the UN Demuku community is a US-based criminologist telling the committal hearing that the shooting or that shooting Walker three times in the back while he was being held to the ground is excessive, unreasonable and unnecessary. Great quote. <laughs> Great quote. I, 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 admit, I did a bit of 
paraphrasing. <laughs> yeah, but well, uh, good, great stuff. I, I think that's fantastic and short to the point, and uh, yeah, beautiful. Um, yeah, <laughs> shooting Walker three times in the back while he was being held to the ground. Yeah, probably a little bit excessive. Mm. Yeah, yeah, so, for shame. Um, we'll hopefully get a good outcome, but from reading the uh, reading about it, it doesn't seem hopeful. As with all murders of Indigenous people by police. Yeah, well, um, it would be the first time yeah. that... It'd, yeah, it would be, fir- yeah, the fir- very first one, so... We can, we can hope. <laughs> yeah. So we'll definitely bring the update once the court case gets started again on the 25th. Good stuff. All right, we are going to agitate, educate and organise. What's been happening, comrades? Right, right, comrades. Well, I thought, I thought uh, I'd uh, chat about uh, what uh, um, I've been up to and other, uh, I and other comrades have been up to out at Ipswich and our, um, our campaign uh, against it becoming, you know, the uh, uh, dump capital, well, of Australia. And um, I'm excited to announce that uh, we've uh, there's there's a, a, a new group, and of course, bugger lugs, yours truly is uh, part of that. Um, that, that is uh, campaigning against uh, the, the the main focus is the incinerator, and um, that is, it's bringing together. It's quite, been quite an interesting few weeks in attending the meetings and that because we've had people from Labor, we've had people from Greens. We've we've had uh, we've had independents, um, conservative, independent, no less, and uh, we've all come together. And uh, um, there, there's unionists involved, of course, you know, <laughs> but there's other unionists other than me that is involved, and uh, we've uh, um, worked on a, a campaign. And, and we've dotted all our I's, crossed all our T's and um, made sure that the, the focus is, is on, on the, the no incinerators. And they had a, uh, a media launch yesterday, or we had a media launch yesterday, um, saying that the, the, putting, you know, the, the politicians and putting the, the bosses on notice um, that uh, we're not going to stand for, for uh, having a, something that burns plastic for power. That's... That's what I'm calling it. That's my quote, that one. I'll put that yeah, in there. Yeah, that's pretty gross when you put it that way. Yeah, don't burn plastic for power, you know. So not – and, uh, look, I, I always do this. I, I like to be transparent. Um, I've got vested interests. As, as we've talked about this on the show before. We had uh, Jim Dodrell on, the, who's the, the expert on this, doing all the research and that. But I have a vested interest because uh, this is very close to my home. Very close, uh, less than two kilometres, the, where the proposed incinerator is going to be built. And uh, quite frankly, I, I, I don't think uh, my kids should have to breathe this crap that they're going to pump out of there. And uh, it's not about me. Look, look, I'm a smoker for damn <laughs> so It's not about me. It's it's about my kids and and my family and my community. And uh, you know, burning burning our power, a plastic for power is just not on. So um, yeah, we're putting pressure on on the politicians, and uh, we're going to have a little bit of a ra- little bit of a rally on Wednesday. Um, it's a bit hard to uh, 
uh, organise things in, um, you know, COVID, uh, you know, so there's going to be a, a couple of groups of uh, nine or ten people <laughs> there. And, uh, yes, we're going to uh, uh, be up at Parliament House there and uh, and uh, let them know that, uh, yeah, we're even willing to travel into town and say, hey. But um, the other part of uh, the campaign is letting all, all of Brisbane know. Now... At the moment, we're 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 getting uh, research done into, I think the word is plumes, how the how the how the how it comes out of the the um, the incinerator, how the the, the the junk that they pump out of there is going to come out, and and with different weather patterns where it's going to go, right? Because um, we're we're starting to to uh, see uh, evidence or. or, or um, yeah, I'll use the word evidence, uh, um, uh, the, uh, circumstantial evidence, I could could say there, that it's going to affect a good chunk of Brisbane all the way into, say, so nearly to Maruka, you know, are going to, you know, feel the health effects. And all, the way that the, the, the valley is out there, we're, we're, we're even thinking that it may go out all the way out to Lockyer Valley, Lockyer Valley with the, with the right winds and stuff like that, which is... That's where all our veggies are grown. Oh, and, true. You know, yeah. so we're going to have this crap landing on our veggies, landing in our waterways. Um, and you know that that's on top of uh, there's there's new estates being built right now, new homes being built today within two kilometres of this place. Get angry, comrades! This isn't good enough. Yeah, so uh, we're going to be out there um, at lunch at Upper Parliament House tomorrow. Um, get out there if you want to come and uh, show some solidarity. Um, you know, this is this is going to grow. It's going to be, you know, it's bigger than the election process. Um, we're going to keep we, we, our plans go further than the the, the state election because uh, when when you look at it, you know, we're going to have Labor or Liberal in. You know, both of them, you know, seem to uh, be on the side of the bosses. So, um, you know, we're going to be campaigning very, very hard out there for for coming years. And um, to top it all off, um, yesterday, I don't know if this was planned or not, uh, coincidental, on the day we launched our media uh, release, the the company that is planning on putting building this incinerator, and nothing, no, no community consultation has happened. None. The mayor of Ipswich has spoken out about it, uh, against it. They they don't want it. Um, so it, it was referred to something that they call the Coordinator General. Um, and uh, yeah, there's been no uh, consultation with the public. But Ramondas, the company that wants to build this this thing, they're already advertising for for jobs out there. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah. They want their program. They're looking for the engineer to be the program manager, a program director, or something like that. Project director. So where's it all at? Like it's been been approved and whatnot. Like no, no, it's not. It's it's with the coordinator general. Ah, oh, okay. And uh, that's. <laughs> He, 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 like, well, you know me. I'm not an expert on it, but even the experts are are, are a bit bewildered at where it is and 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 how the public are going to actually be consulted and uh, uh, because it looks like when uh, you know unless we stand up far back we're not 
They were just mm. going to they were just going to put it in there and uh, you know take the people of Ipswich for granted. So uh, not on. Um, I've been watching this issue for a long time. The the, the dumps and stuff out there. It's a very, very difficult um, area to organise, very difficult to organise, you know, because compared to, you know, with workers where you organise workers, you go, you bring your workers together. This one, you you got to bring different, you know, uh, people of the community from different walks of life and um, different socioeconomic, uh, um, uh, you know, backgrounds and you've got to bring them all together and... And the main thing is that we've been focusing on that core issue, you know. I don't like to be a single-issue uh, person, and I, I, I am not, but with this one, we're, we're focusing in, and we want to stop the incinerator. So, yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's uh, that, like, sort of broad church of support behind you that you've got behind this campaign is really interesting. It sort of shows how, like, obvious it is. Like, we all need to breathe air, and if you go putting poison in it, it'll just ruin everyone's lives, and ev- pretty much everyone can see that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, like w- the air is one of the few places which hasn't been privatized. Or oh, they tried. They were selling like bottles of air in China to, to wealthy <laughs> people a while ago, I think. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, you might have to buy O2 for your home, you know. Yeah, I guess pollution is sort of a way they go around trying to actually do that. It's yeah. it's so backwards thinking, you know. Even in the 1980s, we, we probably were, oh, this doesn't sound right, you know. And, mm. you know, you can go back to, so you could go back to about early 80s and you were still allowed to burn your rubbish in your backyard. <laughs> Everyone used to burn rubbish in the backyard. Sure. It was terrible. Saturday afternoons were terrible in suburbia. I'll give you the drum. It was two-stroke and fumes. That's what you got Saturdays in suburbia, two-strokes and fumes, especially my my, my stepfather loved the bloody thing, you know, and he, he'd chuck everything he could in there, you know. <laughs> oh, it, it, yeah, it was, yeah, they just used to burn all our rubbish. So, you know, and that was back when, you know, it wasn't... You know, plastic wasn't as far along as what it is now. Um, so there was a lot of crap in there and, uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah, we don't want that. And and also the smog, we, we've, we've made so much improvements, like, like since since then. Um, uh, you, you think that we've got lead out of petrol? You know, Sydney used to be a smog when I was a kid. It's, 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 the air quality is probably better in Sydney than when I was as a kid. Definitely the water quality in Sydney Harbour is better now than when I was a kid, you know, because we've just done some some obvious things that that go, hey, uh, that's not too good for us, you know, lead and petrol and and all this stuff, and we fix it. But here we are, we're going backwards, backwards, mm. you know. But I'll, I'll I'll just leave it on on that 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 uh, to- that uh, uh, line grab that I've got. Yeah, we're not we don't want to burn plastic for power. Yep, let's not do that. All right, so we'll jump into some workers' action. Yeah, so we've got some a riot at the Arthagori Correctional Centre. Uh, people locked up in a high-security Queensland prison began rioting after staff struggled to deliver basic services, including meals and medication, amid a coronavirus lockdown. Prisoners at Arthur Gorry Correctional Centre in Western Brisbane have not left their cell for days and have not been able to contact fa- family or their lawyers by phone. 
Some prisoners started lighting fires, smashing windows, and flooding their cells with water on Monday. Uh, this is last Monday, in an apparent protest at the deteriorating conditions in the already overcrowded prison. The prison went into lockdown last Thursday, that's two Thursdays ago, after Queensland Health revealed two of its correction officers were part of a COVID-19 cluster. Arthur Gorey is a remand-type prison, so its residents have not been convicted of a crime. Greg Barnes from the Australian Lawyers Alliance said the rioting was predictable. Rioting in the Arthur Gorey Correctional Centre is a foreseeable consequence of the harsh coronavirus lockdown that is still being enforced at this facility, he said. It is well known that solitary confinement causes an increased risk of mental harm and creates an intolerable and unstable environment within prisons. Extreme isolation means no contact with family and friends, no rehabilitation programs, and no visits from external professionals such as lawyers. The isolation inevitably creates a highly tense, stressful, and dangerous environment. The most effective way to avoid a serious outbreak of COVID-19 in our prison system is to drastically reduce the populations of prisons. Right on. Yes. Uh, So this story is from last uh, Tuesday, actually. Uh, So I'm not sure what the current situation is. I would imagine that by now they've been in lockdown for quite a while longer. There was a rally out there on Saturday, a a solidarity. What... what, um what activists do is is get out there and and make some noise, and just just let 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 the uh, workers in 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 locked up that uh, yeah we're there with them. So um, yeah, that happened on Saturday. Mm. Um, There's also one on Wednesday, I believe, or the day after this news story came okay. out. Okay, so they've been going out there and. Uh, but, uh, yeah, a- as we know and as we talked about last week, that uh, they're workers too. And uh, I-, I like the point that... Uh, they haven't uh, been convicted yeah, of a crime. <laughs> they haven't been convicted, you know, so... I mean, to be fair, it's not like people who've been convicted of a crime are any more deserving of being mm. stuck in this sort of situation. Too true. Yeah, but, uh, you know, what's going on out there? And it's, uh, yeah, that's a, you know, prison for profit. Arthur Gorey's privately run. Hmm. It's not, it's not, it's not run by the government. It's it's a prison for profit, and they, I don't know how they, how they charge, but they probably charge per, the government per prisoner, hmm. stuff like that. And so the less staff they got there, and I thought, yeah, now that I think about it, we, we talked about this last week. There's, you know, there's plenty of space out there. There's no reason why that they shouldn't be letting them out for a couple of hours a day. They've just got to. You know, uh, provide the resources to be able to do that, and and uh, you know because it's for profit, they're probably not willing to do that. So, yeah, the, the sort of thing creates a sort of perverse incentive of like the by creating a, a for profit prison, you create an incentive for more prisoners, and uh, it's the similar thing with that um, incinerator by creating a for profit waste incinerator, you create a. Pr- uh, Incentive for more waste to be created as well, which that's, is just bad right. for the environment. That's right, and there there, will, there would be you'd, you'd find that the co- the company that that runs uh, Arthur Gorey Correctional Centre, they they'd have minimums, you know. So the oh, government right. they would they'd have it in their contract, but mm. of course that'd be you know, contracting confidence. But they'd be stupid stupid business not if they didn't, and go in and say you know what well, what happens if you take over a, a, a prison. 
and then the government, you know, starts relaxing uh, on crime. There's not as many people in there, you know. You, you're going, hang on a minute, you've shafted me here. No, there'd be, you know, uh, um, you know, there'd be, be uh, very stringent contracts in place where there'd be minimum numbers. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've seen that's what's happened in the um, United States and we know how their prison population is just, yeah, phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, I think it's 25% of the world's total prison population yeah. in the US. I'm pretty sure they've still got laws over there that um, it, it still goes back to, uh, who was it, to George, no, not George, but before, uh, Ronald Reagan. Where that where there was the war on drugs and and the the, the big impact was um, that uh, if you were caught if you got a uh, possession charges and and you could just do it to pot right so say you know you you, you get you get done three times for possession of uh, marijuana over there it's mandatory jail time yeah three strikes you're out. Mandatory, so you you know you you could get you could get uh, you know pulled up at a festival for smoking puffing on a joint three times, boom, you're in jail for a few years. Mm. How can that be good for society? Yeah, and yeah. like the whole intention behind it was to criminalise the anti-war movement as well. Yeah, yeah, there was there was a lot of political uh, things involved in that. So yeah, yeah. We we probably should move. uh, One more thing I wanted to say was like with the whole, um, you you described the the idea of a quota or whatever, the minimum amount of prisoners as smart business. And it really um, shows the nature of capitalism to have something so inhumane be described as smart business. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's it's not good, you know. And uh, yeah, yeah, we, it, um, yeah. There's plenty of reforms to be happening in that that area. Well, Let's just it. abolish the whole prison system, I reckon. <laughs> should we should we go another one, or should we take a break? All right, let's jump into some more workers' action. Yeah, we've got some news from the ABC uh, and the MEAA. Um, A disagreement over ABC redundancy entitlements, which could disadvantage women employees the most, according to staff and unions, has prompted the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance to lodge a dispute with the Fair Work Commission. A three-year funding freeze, which took effect in the 2019 to 2020 financial period and stripped $84 million from the organization's budget has forced management to cut more than 200 jobs since June, including at least 80 in the ABC's news division. Total job losses may be closer to 250 once the redundancy process is complete. More than a dozen ABC employees who are not authorised to speak publicly claim the dispute concerns an attempt by management to limit severance payouts for staff who have previously worked part-time. The ABC's current enterprise agreement states that retrenched workers are entitled to the equivalent of four weeks' salary for each of their first five years of completed service, then three weeks' salary for each subsequent year, capped at a maximum of 24 years. Sources say that management is insisting upon pro-rata reductions for any part-time service within this 24-year period. Women are much more likely to reduce their full-time employment to part-time when they have children, said one staff member, but many women also return to full-time work once they get their kids once their kids get older. 
To argue that these employees should be paid less for a few years of part-time service is absurd. Yeah, yeah. good on the uh, MEAA for, for um, standing up for workers at the ABC who have been gutted by government cuts and, mm. and now they've got a boss who doesn't look after them anymore. Yeah, so uh, just to repeat that, because like, personally I, fa- I found that a bit uh, weird to wrap my head around, but basically uh, for people who have worked for quite a while at the ABC, if they've taken any part-time work during that period, they'll be, they won't get as much money in their severance payment, which will affect women more, because they will would more have more likely to take in part-time to uh, raise children. Yeah, which is the most important point. That's how women end up... <coughs> over their lifetime um, earning less and there's still so much talk about the the pay gap but a lot of it comes down to stuff like this, you know, women taking that time off and losing out massively and um, ending up with a lot less super. Yeah, and taking a double hit with redundancy payments as well, you know. It's, mm. Yeah, um, it, it, it's it's not good what's going on over the ABC. Um you know, it's um, I'm, you know, even though I'm four triple Z, uh, very proud. Um, we we need the Australian broadcaster. We we need it there, you know, and uh, um, yeah, to to have the cuts and and and, and then you uh, you you end up with um, they're competing with um, Sky News rather than actually. You know, uh, representing the community, and pre- uh, you know, and yeah, we don't uh, want that. <laughs> yeah, and that, that. That's what's going on with ABC at the moment, and uh, you can you can see that the, the the changes are happening uh, um, in, in all the uh, mainstream news services. You know, there there uh, seems to be a bit, bit of, um, from my my perception, there just seems to be a bit of a swing to the right. But uh, oh, the neoliberal agenda is insidious yeah. in that way. Yeah, not not here on. Uh, Four triple Z or workers <laughs> power, though, comrades. Here you'll get the real news. <laughs> That's right, you get the news told from a workers' perspective to create a balance in the in the uh, uh, Queensland news market. Yeah, and no pay cuts because we don't get paid. We That's do right it for the love of it. <laughs> we're we're here for for you know our commi- proving and uh, and and expanding on our commitment to uh, our class and our union struggle and. Uh, and that's the only reason, you know, we get we get hit. It's the only time of the week I get up early out of bed. <laughs> yeah, income, comrades. You're a true comrade. You know, and uh, yeah, yeah, we will uh, we'll keep reporting uh, the, those uh, the news that should be reported or much, much more. Yeah, and one more thing I want to mention with this story is that uh, most of the people who I mean uh, I don't know if it's most, but a lot of the people who are uh, taking these redundancy. Um, losing their jobs to this redundancy stuff uh, have put their hands up and they're doing it voluntarily so, so like they they're in a position where they can do that and they want to save their comrades jobs mm. wow. um, so and you know these people who are making this sacrifice they should get the um, the severance pay that they deserve oh yeah. yeah right on it's a big sacrifice to make right we've got a story from our comrades at uh, United Workers Union Yeah, I'll jump on that one. Um, Workers at Ballina RSL Club are demanding a fair and transparent negotiation of their working conditions. The club says they are restructuring due to the pandemic. However, they failed to show a significant downturn in business as needed to claim JobKeeper. Union members are committed to collectively working with the club to ensure a sustainable solution. Ballina RSL Club must sit down with their workers and negotiate a fair outcome. 
The club management marched workers into meetings and demanded they accept 80% cuts to to take their home pay. The club gave some workers barely 24 hours notice to accept these devastating cuts or face the sack. The club expects workers to pay their mortgage, bills and groceries on less than $200 wages per week. Some of these workers have served the club for decades, but within a week have been told to accept poverty wages or lose their job. This club brings in millions of dollars in pokies revenue, but expects its workers to live on less than $30 per day. Per shame. For shame, yeah. Some of these places, I haven't been to Ballinara cell, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking it's a small casino. Yeah, I used to live in Ballina. It's, you know, a decent size RSL. You know, and uh, that, that's, you know, they're part, part of the problem in our society is, um, you know, uh, the, the, the entertainment uh, that uh, the, the, these clubs and, and pubs, for that matter, that they, they provide is single-fold. Mm. Yeah, put your money into this machine. That's that's all they got, you know. And uh, you know, there's there's no. I talk about this a lot, you know. Back in my day, um, but uh, <laughs> you know, a, a club and, and and a pub was somewhere where you went out and and you you had various uh, forms of entertainment there, whether that be a rock and roll band or or a, or, or any type of music band, you know. And and there'd be pool tables, there'd be you know a pinball machine and and, and things like this. And uh, yeah, but uh, you know, an entertainment and you know and. But uh, these days, it's uh, yeah, they're just uh, mini casinos, and uh, we. I just wanted to get to the point that that, that uh, yeah, they're cash machines. They're they're gold mines for 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 NGOs and the directors that that are that are elected to the board. You know, they they just they don't pay themselves, but they give themselves you know like uh, expense accounts and things like this. You know, they're they're not volunteers like us. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Um, the the real people that they should be looking after is um, is the workers who, who've kept the, kept the club going uh, over the last few decades and and kept it going through for the last few months through a crisis. So yeah, pay your workers scallywags. Yeah, how do these people get away with paying this much? Like, surely this is below the minimum wage. Well, what they've probably done is here is cut their shifts. Right. Okay. So you got a highly casualised workforce in in hospitality. Oh uh, yeah, that makes sense with the old pandemic. Everyone's just not working. Yeah, and, yeah. and and it's a, it's another problem that that, that neoliberalism has caused. And over the last you know twenty good twenty years is where a lot of workers is casualised or or, or labour hire, um, and uh, yeah, so that when there's a downturn in business. Mm. It's it's the workers. You just you, you just put the workers off, and therefore you, your profits don't suffer as much. Retail are dreadful for it. Retail are dreadful for it. And uh, I learnt very quickly. I think I mentioned this on the on the show before, but it's a, it's a pretty good point for now. Is is that uh, my experience with retail was that they gave you five hours permanent wise. They gave you five hours less than what you needed, you asked for, you talked about. Yeah. So, you know, you, if you said, oh, 25 hours is, is, is going to be good for me and, and I'll, need, I'll be very happy with that, they'll come at you with a roster for 20 or 21 hours. So they're trying go, to keep you desperate. Yeah, and go, and go, don't worry, you'll pick up plenty of shifts. Mm. You'll, you'll make up that four hours, no worries. 
But uh, yeah, one you, you've got you've got that desperation that you you, you know you you've got to say yes and you've got to toe the line so you get that extra shift per week. But the other factor is that when you get to uh, um, when you get to May and June. When when the casual budget has already been spent for the year, you're you're four hours a week. You know, you're, I used to call it my beer money. That was my beer money. That extra four hours. That's so I could get you know go and have a beer, maybe take the family to dinner. Um, you know the the things as a worker you should be enjoying in life. You know, so um, and and that's what what I always used to talk about it. And uh, um, so uh, yeah yeah the, the the way workers are, are treated today you know and casualized and boom you know one week you, you, you're in and eight hundred dollars things are doing pretty good you know, might go get a car loan god forbid you could get could even manage to get a mortgage and lo and behold you know um, you know a pandemic later you're on 200 bucks a week yeah that'd be devastating yeah not good mm. not in a small community like Ballina. No, yeah. You know, like it's, it'd be tough to get more work. So solidarity to the comrades there and stand up and fight back. And if you're listening, uh, get in touch and we'll, 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 we'll uh, uh, if there's more to the story, we'll, we'll, we will report it. Hmm. Right. Now we have a quick update from the services union. Would you like to do that one, Jackson? Sure thing. So the Palaszczuk government announced last week that the portable long service leave scheme will commence on the 1st of January 2021. Appointments to the management board were also announced and the regulations have been approved. The services union has been campaigning for portable long service leave for many years to ensure the service and hard work of community members. Uh, community service workers is acknowledged by giving all members the ability to access paid long service leave. Uh, the hard work of members made this a reality. The services union will now work with employers and QLeave, which is managing the fund to ensure everything is set up in time for reporting of long service accruals to commence from the 1st of January 2021. The union will also work towards delivering the necessary education and support community service workers will need to understand the scheme and reporting requirements. Yeah, so that's a really good story because that's been going on for a long time. So people can now take their long service leave from job to job, which, you know, many of us, we do jump around from job to job a lot of the time. So you're not going to you're not gonna miss out on that. Good job, the services union. Yeah. And especially with the pandemic and everyone losing their jobs, having to change around, it will definitely be very useful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's right. That affects me too, comrades. Ah, yeah, yep. <laughs> I get, I'm 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 uh, under that award, so yeah. Well, there you go. That's great news. All right. I've, n- I've never stayed in a job. Coles. Um, uh, I was short Coles six months to get to get access to uh, long service leave, and at the time I just had a gutful, and I thought, no, it's just not worth the wait. Mm, that's sad. Couple, <laughs> cost, cost me a couple of grand. But I just couldn't. Just couldn't I just it. had enough. <laughs> My, you know what price do you put on your mental health? Mm, that's right. All right, we might leave it at that for now and we'll jump into some international workers' action. Yeah, so now we've got some news from New Zealand and I believe this story was from a news source called Stuff. 
Uh, bacon factory worker Pat Scully is disappointed. She's still basically on a minimum wage despite working for the company for 11 years. Okay, I think I should have read the title first. Um, why were rapper Bacon Factory Workers stand up for a living wage? She was one of around 40 staff members with the Et Two Union picketing outside the Premier Beehive Factory in Carterton on Tuesday, asking for pay rises with back pay. Scully said it was disheartening that someone with her experience couldn't even command a living wage, and if it wasn't for her superannuation, she would struggle to get by. The current minimum wage increased to $18.90 on April 1st this year, and the living wage was $22.10. The Australian-owned Premier Beehive New Zealand employs more than 300 staff, most of whom work in the Carterton factory. E2 union organiser George Hollandsworth said the staff's willingness to put their heads above the parapet shows that they were upset with the company's current offer. They're wound up enough to stand out in front of the company office, which says to me they're quite angry about this. Uh, she wanted to she wanted to see everyone get a get a pay increase backdated to April when the contract negotiations should have been resolved. I think we should get back pay because we worked all the way through COVID. Rolling picket was in effect outside the main gates on Morton Road on Tuesday from around 10am until after lunch with union workers joining during their breaks, Hollandsworth said. Of the 150 union members working at the factory, only 22 were earning more than a living wage. Yeah, it's just so ridiculous that people spend most of their waking hours going to work, but they don't even earn enough to you know live anywhere near comfortably mm. it's yeah ridiculous so anyway, solidarity from us here at workers power yeah that that example there of uh, the, the brave comrade pat scully um, having to dip into the superannuation yeah just to, just to, to yeah. survive <laughs> if it wasn't for her superannuation she would struggle to get by that's ridiculous. Yeah, it's just terrible, you know. Like eighteen dollars ninety in this day and age. It's um, a, yeah, it's a pittance, really, it's isn't not, it? Yeah, and considering how much uh, she was getting paid, I doubt there would be that much superannuation there. Well, that's right. Mm. It's not going to last for very long. So, uh, yeah, solidarity with those comrades across the ditch. Um, yeah, and we'll uh, we'll try and stay up to date with that. Hopefully, we'll have some good news to report in a couple of weeks, like we sometimes inevitably do here on uh, Workers Power. It, uh, we report it in a couple of weeks later. Uh, some good news. Yeah, the tends magical to magical Workers Power fix. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I like it when 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 scallywags uh, backtrack. So, yeah, but, uh, yeah I, I like to claim those, but. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be showing solidarity and uh, like uh, I know I haven't heard of uh, uh, this until uh, until it was reported to me by one of the teams. So, uh, yeah, great stuff, team. Yeah, so now we've got a, um, a sad story, a eulogy. Influential anarchist author and anthropologist David Graeber has died due to unknown health Region, reasons at the age of 59 and we're just going to read out a eulogy written by the anarchist media collective Crime Think to mark his passing 
David's unexpected passing takes us by surprise. Only days ago, we were corresponding with him about Facebook's decision to ban anarchist pages to placate the Trump administration. David was among the first to respond with a support statement, charging that nothing could conceivably be more violent than to tell us, and particularly our young people, we are forbidden to even dream of a peaceful, caring world. This was in character for David. He was not just an intellectual, he was always eager to take a stand, putting himself in the thick of things. He participated in the Direct Action Network in New York City, leading up to the massive demonstration against the free trade area of the America's Ministerial in Quebec City in April 2001, at the high point of the so-called anti-globalization movement. He was an instrumental participant in the founding of Occupy Wall Street, and engaged in debates about violence that followed, confronting the same self-righteous pundits that other anarchists did. He was one of the first to direct international attention to the revolutionary experiment in Rojava when it was threatened by the Islamic State, and joined us a year ago in calling for solidarity when Turkey invaded. He put his body on the line along with his reputation, braving tear gas as well as academic retaliation, after Yale forced him out for his political beliefs, David was compelled to move overseas to find a university position commensurate with his abilities. He got a corporate publishing deal, yes, but he got it by refusing to compromise, not watering down his politics. David wrote and thought and said and did more than we could possibly summarize here. We hope that others will compose a proper eulogy to him, recounting all of his activities and contributions across a wide range of fields. Even when we disagreed, we always learned from him. He was a stalwart friend and a worthy adversary. Engraver's most transcendent work, such as the essay, What's the Point if We Can't Have Fun?, he grapples with the basic ontological questions about freedom and the cosmos. This is how we remember him, weaving together different threads to present a vision of self-determination that extends, that extends from subatomic particles to entire societies and ecosystems. And this is a quote from an extract from one of his writings. It is meaningful. Is it meaningful to say an electron chooses to jump the way it does? Obviously, there's no way to prove it. The only evidence we could have that we can't predict what it's going to do, we do have, but it's hardly decisive. Still, if no one wants a consistently materialist explanation of the world, that is, if one does not wish to treat the mind as some supernatural entity imposed on the material world, but rather as simply a more complex organization of processes that are already going on at every level of material reality, then it makes sense that something at least a little like intentionality, something at least a little like experience, something at least a little like freedom would have to exist on every level of physical reality as well. He passed away at the young age of 59. Our hearts go to everyone who survives him. We mourn his passing and grieve for all the things that David had yet to share with us. Yeah, I saw that essay pop up in my feed the other day. I might have to go back through and try to find it. It looked like an interesting one. Mm. Yeah, so uh, we at Workers' Power share the sentiment that crime thinkers shared. So I don't think we could uh, put it quite as eloquently. Yeah, as yeah no, it's, uh, it's a, a good thing and, uh, 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 to mark... Uh, uh, the passing of a, of a celebrated anarchist and, uh, you know, someone to uh, uh, who's bravely stood up and fought back for the greater good. So, uh, 
great work, comrade, and, uh, you know, rest in power. Mm. Yeah, your legacy won't be forgotten. All right, so we have one more international workers' action. Uh, rest in peace, anti-fascist <coughs> revolutionary Michael Renault. Anti-fascist revolutionary Michael Renault was assassinated by pigs in Olympia, Washington on September 4th in retaliation for the shooting of a member of the fascist group Patriot Prayer. Renault claimed responsibility for the shooting as an act of self-defence against a fascist who threatened Renault and a friend with mace and a knife. Renault went to downtown Portland on Saturday night to provide security for revolutionaries who were threatened by a caravan of fascist Trump supporters who paraded through the city centre. Had I stepped forward, he would have maced or stabbed me, Renault said in an interview. I was confident that I did not hit anyone innocent and I made my exit. I felt it's important that the world at least gets a little bit of what's really going on. I had no choice. I mean, I had no cho- I had a choice. I could have sat there and watched them kill a friend of, my, of colour, but I wasn't going to do that. A statement from an anti-fascist activist in the area reads... They had unmarked SUVs watching the street and they put around 25 rounds into him. He was unarmed. The person whose home he was killed in front of said he had no rifle or other visible gun. It's also notable that 10 to 15 minutes after his death, there was already a police statement and a New York Times article. The only explanation is that the police in NYT prepared their release before Renault was killed. It was a stone-cold hit job, and they want us to know it was. The terror message is, we can kill you in the street and get away with it. We can get to you. These are some of Michael Renault's own words on revolutionary struggle. Every revolution needs people that are willing and ready to fight. There are many of us protesters that are just protesting without a clue of what, where that will lead. That's just the beginning. That's where the fight starts. If that's as far and you can take it, thank you for your participation. But please stand aside and support the ones that are willing to fight. I am 100% Antifa all the way. I am willing to fight for my brothers and sisters, even if some of them are too ignorant to realise what Antifa truly stands for. We are currently living through a crucial point in humanity's evolution. We truly have an opportunity right now to fix everything, but it will be a fight like no other. It will be a war, and like all wars, there will be casualties. Right on. Rest in peace, comrade. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm glad that we, we uh, mentioned Portland. I, was looked at, I had a quick look through the, the, the show last night. Great work, team. It's been a great, you know, a very diverse range of uh, articles there. But uh, I, um, because I got some, a bit of feedback from... Uh, from my partner uh shout out to laura and she's gone she said have you been reporting on portland and i'm like well yeah we have she goes isn't it great that they're still going you know but we don't hear much about it bill and i go well you should be listening to my show a little bit more than laura. <laughs> yeah. um but yeah it's it's yeah they're still going over in portland don't they yeah it's like oh Oh, I can't remember the number, sorry. But, yeah, it's been going for a long time yeah, we now. we said, like, 100 days, but that yeah. was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I was about to say that. I'm like, wait, that was a while ago. 
yeah but, but yeah the uh the the the, the pigs are, are are using their normal uh uh filthy tactics and uh yeah it's just so brazen the way they're going about it now they're not even pretending you know or trying to hide what they're doing it's just in your face fascist killing of anybody who's standing up against them yeah so as we, as we were talking about off air later it's it's going to be some interesting times there come November um, in America and, uh, you know, either way, it's <laughs> uh, we concluded either way it's it's going to get messy. You yeah. know, whoever wins the next election, it's going to be, a, a, you know, like a, a probably, a, from my personal opinion, the worst country in the world to live. Mm. They, they all think, oh, America the brave, America the great. No, nah. oh, the worst country in the world to live if you're poor. Yeah, if you're rich, you got you got it pretty good. Yeah, yeah. If you're privileged, you, you know you're all right. You know, so well. well every now and again, uh, especially when it's hot, uh, um, I always uh, remind uh, my my partner that oh, there's a there's a teachers shortage in Colorado. <laughs> Maybe we should go move there, and it's not so hot. Um, but yeah, no, no common sense prevails. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, we're we're uh, we're doing great things here in Brisbane, and uh, yeah, we'll keep we'll, we'll just have to put up with the heat when it comes. Yeah, so to all our North American comrades, uh, we're thinking of you and keep up the fight. We'll keep reporting on it as we hear about it. Yeah, and this uh, this is a, a pretty interesting story in particular. Um, I mean, it's very sad that he was killed, but it's also the first time I think that uh, anti-fascist activists in America have actually killed someone themselves. Oh, okay. Yeah, because, I, I mean, I'm not too sure about that, but I remember you constantly hearing about how they've basically killed no one. And this might be the first time... Yeah, like, I think you might uh, be right. Yeah. Mm. And there was swift um, retaliation from the state in yeah, this case. Yeah, just took him straight out. Mm. Mm, yeah, well, uh, yeah, like, like we always say, we will keep you uh, up to date with the revolutionary struggle all around the world. So earlier in the show, we were talking about the Ipswich Incinerator Campaign Action Group. Uh, so just a reminder that at 12 tomorrow um, at Parliament House on the corner of Alice and George Streets, Brisbane, there's the first protest um, to start the campaign against the proposed waste to energy incinerator for Ipswich and our comrade Bill will be there. Um, it'll be a really important one to get along to because as we discussed earlier, this will have a really big impact, not just on Ipswich, but on some of the suburbs, even where I live out at Acacia Ridge. Um, there's plumes of horrible burnt plastic smoke will float over our homes, over our children and over our, over our crops that's a really important thing to get involved in, comrades. That's right. And uh, as an added bonus, um, uh, we, we, we've got a character. Uh, we've got a mascot and uh, it's, they, their name is Ippy the Ibis. And Ippy is an eight-foot uh, uh, ibis who's uh, travelled uh, uh, from New South Wales, where most of our rubbish comes from. A lot of our rubbish comes from down there, out at Ipswich. And... Uh, and come up and, and was in, enjoying uh, the dumps that we had here at Ipswich. But uh, 
doesn't like the idea of the rubbish being burnt because that's what they eat. <laughs> so anyhow, we've created this fantastic mascot. They will be there and uh, it's uh, go- hopefully uh, going to turn into a bit of a, a character in the in this struggle. And I, I note that uh, uh, the Ipswich Mayor, uh, the Ipswich West MP is actually conversing with uh, Ippy the Ibis on Facebook as we speak. Great stuff. Great stuff. <laughs> Seeing a politician talk to a fictional character is, ah, oh, that's what campaigning is all about, comrades. <laughs> right, oh, well, we'll move on to uh, the scallywag of the week. Before we actually move on to the actual scallywag of this week, I wanted to um, uh, put a shout out to our comrade uh, uh, Peter uh, Bijini in. Um, from the T- Transport Workers Union, who he sent us in a, a message last week. He was tuning in last week and a, a recommendation uh, for uh, uh, Alan Joyce uh, of Qantas uh, to be Scallywag of the Week after announcing 2,400 jobs to be outsourced to save money but have wages and conditions stripped away. Alan Joyce was paid $23 million dollars Eight hundred and seventy-six thousand three hundred and fifty-one last year. That's four hundred and four hundred and what have I got there? Forty-six thousand dollars per week. Jeez. That's extraordinary. That's yeah. more than what I earned last financial year. Well, Alan Joyce is a scallywag every week. That's right, and that's it. I've, I've since had a chat with uh, Peter, and and yeah, and uh, let him know that. Uh, Alan Joyce is currently, uh, I had a bit of a look through uh, past run sheets and Alan Joyce is currently favourite to win Scallywag of the the Year. So there's a a red hot tip for our December show. Um, We we should nearly take bets on it later on in the year. uh, (laughs) But uh, yeah, Alan Joyce is red hot. But uh, I wanted to um, shout out to uh, Peter Bijini and all the comrades from TWU. Uh, Thanks for listening and uh, thanks for being a subscriber as well. I I know that uh, uh, Peter has been a long-term subscriber and supporter of 4ZZZ. Um, Even um, helped us move into the building here back in the day. So yeah, great work, comrade. Right, on to the scallywag of the week. Um, I'll go through this one. This is from my former neck of the woods. Uh, Reports over the last week have revealed that while executives were crying crying poor to the government, the CEO of Australia Post took a plan to the board for for a meaty executive bonuses worth $7 million dollars all while refusing to give its workers job security and pushing out multiple redundancy rounds. Over 2,600 workers are concerned for their jobs while they watch Australia Post executives line their pockets. It is clear that Australia Post management are using the cover of a global pandemic to cut postal services and jobs. Today, it is also reported that workers are now being asked to volunteer their time and cars to assist with the delivery of parcels. This week's scallywag of the week is Australia Post CEO Christine Holgate. You scallywag. Yeah, they're they're the scallywags of scallywags in that role and they're they're the highest paid. Now, I consider um, Australia Post... uh, 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 
a service. It's a, it's a public service. Not, you know, the government will disagree with me and they've set it up as a corporation. And, uh, yeah, and uh, but uh, it, with that in mind, Christine Holgate is the highest paid public servant in Australia. Oh, wow. Oh. Yes. Oh, yeah. It always has been. Australia Post, um, in the last, say, 20 years or so, yeah, they've been, you know, because what they did is they, they set it up as a corporation. It's Australia It's a corporation now. So it's ready to be sold mm. any time um, a Liberal or Labor government, well, well, well I'll agree with any time the Nationals will let them, basically. It's for, for, it's remarkable that it's actually the Nationals that have kept um, Australia Post kept the prices of the stamp down, and also kept it in public hands. You know, so the um, yeah the the National Party of um, yeah they're the big ones, and because you know they they like to th- say that they represent the the regional communities, and and regional communities rely heavily on their post office. So. Uh, but, uh, yeah, huge shout-out to comrades in, in Australia Post. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm a former one, and uh, um, the, the post office, it, it's a very honourable job. I love it. I loved it. I love my time there. Um, and uh, I've, I've noticed the decline in the, in the mail um, side of things. But uh, just a quick note on that. I know I've mentioned it before here. Um, it's the mail business and the infrastructure and skills and knowledge that come from the mail business that props up and, and, and provides that skill and infrastructure for the highly profitable parcel business. Which is, must be going through the roof at the moment, especially oh, yeah. with the pandemic. They're Everything's online. And, and, and this, 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 this stuff where they're wanting to get people to, to, you know, they're wanting posties, so letter delivery people, oh, can you take these on your way home? You know, no, no, I cannot. You know, can you hire someone to do it? Oh, you know, you know, but uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, but they've always been scallywags, you know, in in, in Australia Post management, and they've always wanted to uh, um, gear it up for privatisation, and Mm. uh, and 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 it's done, been done in stealth, and uh, not many remember that uh, Telstra actually used to be part of Australia Post. So it's been privatised by stealth in in many regards, you know. So uh, yeah, if we could stop privatising essential services, that would be great. That would be really <laughs> great, you know, really great, you know. So right, oh, well, uh, yeah, that's our that's our show for the week. A good show. We've um, we've got one more track left to go, but uh, we we we've got a lead into uh, Brisbane Lines who. Uh, We'll be uh, bringing you, uh, keeping you informed on of of a diverse uh, range of topics uh, that applies to uh, you know Brisbane comrades. So make sure you stick around for that. Um, and uh, yeah, we we've got a. I, th- I think we're we're done. We we've got the one track. I I, I also wanted to. Uh, this is uh, it's Casingles. I've got the Casingles lined up. Have we? We do. Right, yeah, shout out to them and, and we've got Henry Higgins is the song. Now, uh, apparently we're, we're the um, premiere of this song. So um, last week uh, I thought I'd give it another spin this week and then actually do some research on Henry Higgins and it looks like uh, he was a little bit of a conservative but uh, back in the day um, politics were completely different and uh, anyhow this uh, great Henry Higgins... Uh, 
um, stood up for, uh, you know, fair day's work for a fair day's pay. So uh, shout out to the Casingles and, and shout out to anyone who campaigns for a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. And uh, we love it here and we'll uh, see you next week on uh, Workers' Power. See you next week, comrades.